From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. The worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. In her new book, Bread and Roses, local baker Rose Wild takes inspiration from this famous line in labor union leader Rose Schneiderman's 1912 speech. A lot of it boils down to the idea that uh, we deserve in this life uh, sustenance as well as beauty. So bread and also roses. For Rose Wild, sustenance doesn't start with us. It begins with the soil. By taking us on a global tour of grain, she shows us how to create beauty and maximize flavor from the bounty of the earth. Hi, Rose. Congratulations on the book. It's so interesting. Thank you, Evan. I'm really excited to be here. I was scrolling through your Instagram account, and I came upon the latest cake you posted. You describe it as a black sesame, licorice, buttercream, coconut whip, cherry jam, and a millet chiffon soaked with cherry syrup and laced with fermented cherry blossoms. I gathered in spring in New York City for my class at Brooklyn Grange. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Can you use this cake to explain your particular style and the choices you make in creating a cake? Yeah. I love that you picked that one. Um, It was a cake I made when we were letting this flavor go for the season. I'm able to make such things that are ephemeral, like stone fruit, last a little longer because I'm always preserving things in a house. So I think this cake shows that in a couple ways, um, not only with the jam, um, but also those beautiful cherry blossoms that I collected from friends' gardens in New York when they were in season when I was teaching a preservation class at Brooklyn Grange. So they were fermenting for, I guess, the last six or seven months. So that was like just a wonderful way to kind of give you the whole plant or, as I refer to in the book, eating like root to blossom, which is a similar idea as eating nose to tail, but you're doing it with plants or just expand it to everything. So I really like kind of doing that kind of layering where you're eating like a whole cherry and not just like the fruiting body. And then you have a root in there with licorice, which I think is a much maligned ingredient. I'm a big, big fan. Uh, And then the millet, I love that grain. It's super tender. Um, I like to use it as often as I can in pastry. And I really try to match the grains to the application. So that's why I chose that one. I love how the book is organized according to where the grains used originate on the globe. Since we're in the Americas, let's start here. You focus on quinoa, amaranth, and corn. Which one of these would you like to see people bake with more? Ooh. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm really partial to quinoa and amaranth because I grew up in Ecuador. So those were my like main meals. But I'd really like to see people bake more with corn because it's really native to where we are in Northern America and it's beautiful. There are a rainbow of colors. And I think it's been maligned because it is part of our industrial monoculture uh, farming, but it has such a heritage and a biodiversity we could reclaim by trying out 
the different colors, the different types, the different grind sizes. And I think it's really special because it can add so much tenderness to your crumb, just a handful and almost every recipe. Again, I get some from Grist and Toll and also from uh, the Tehachapi Grain Project. Describe the corn trace leches honeysuckle cake, which just, I mean, your titles, I have to tell you, are just so enticing. <laughs> tell, Thank you, tell Evan. Us, t- tell us about this cake. This is one of my favorite snacking cakes from the book. So just like a one layer, easy to have any time of day, really, not too sweet. Um, I give them the name counter cakes also because you can just leave out and enjoy all throughout the day. Um, but the honeysuckle tres leche cake um, came about um, in honor of corn and just the wonderful, like, light uh, tres leche cakes I had growing up in Ecuador. And I love infusing the cream with the honeysuckle because honeysuckle is a really, really delicate flavor. So infusing it in fat and doing it cold allows it to express itself the best. And it has this like light, honey, super floral, kind of jasmine-like flavor. So it's really, really great. I've sometimes pumped it up with a little jasmine tea also or a little honey. But you make this cake and you make a soak that's also infused with honeysuckle and you pour that over the cake over the course of a couple hours. You really want to let it be sort of meditative so that it really soaks through instead of sort of making the top soggy and then spilling over. Um, So this is probably the hardest part because the chiffon cake honestly comes together pretty easily and get that really soaked and then whip up the cream and give a really, really thick layer on top. And then, yeah, have a bite and smile anytime. So let's turn to buckwheat just for a minute. So you have a buckwheat cake with a buckwheat milk tea soak with a yuzu custard, a coconut custard, and torched meringue. Mm. With the <laughs> So with the buckwheat cake, do you have to mix some wheat flour in with it to get what you want? You for for the recipe that's listed in uh the book, there is some Um, all-purpose flour added. And I talk in the beginning of the book about how like a lot of the bakes are 100% whole grains, but that it's not necessary to do 100% in order to kind of do the bigger impact of having more grains on your plate, which is to support millers and bakers and farmers and add biodiversity to the meal. So I'm not like... I don't know. I guess I'm not a purist. Like I love all whole grain, but I'm I'm also not going to reprimand you for cutting it here and there if it means that you use more of these like really delicious things slowly and surely. But I have also done this recipe with 100% buckwheat flour. You'll get a slightly denser crumb and I usually end up doing the cake layers as six instead of three to assist in making sure that it can aerate enough and you still get a really wonderful crumb layer. That also means you have more room for filling. So it's a win-win however you go about it. You spent time in Lebanon where you helped open a bakery. What flowers did you work with while you were there? 
Oh, ah, wow. What a great question. I really enjoyed my time there. I was working with Brant um, Stu of the Sal de Sud Foundation, um, and he had started this bakery where he had employed, was employing, still is, um, Syrian refugee women to make a lot of sourdough baked goods and cookies. And so I went there to sort of help them just broaden their menu and work with some of the grains he was working with. I don't know all the names of the grains we worked with because Brant was involved with going to the seed library and trying to get new grains to bring back to Lebanon. So a lot of the ones we worked with just had numbers and letters. <laughs> but that's really the area of the world where you find like Spelt and Khorasan. So we definitely were using those in sort of the whole grain cookies we were doing and all the sourdough bread. So I really love Khorasan. I consume it mostly in dry pasta. When Khorasan pasta is made in talented hands, it just is just delicious mouthfeel. Mm. Can you talk about working with flowers that are made from this variety of wheat and a bit about the variety itself? Yeah, Khorasan is, I agree, a totally wonderful grain. Again, its its sandy texture really allows it to give some beautiful tenderness. You have to kind of watch your hydration. So as you said, skilled hands are lovely. It's also super buttery and has this grassy note. So it's really good in those simple, simple dishes where you want these like layers of flavor to shine. Um, a lot of people may know this grain by the name of Camus, which is its trademark name. So I use the name that was the original name. Um, but if you have heard of that, then you are already familiar. Um, and it's kind of this long blonde grain. Uh, and I find it is excellent in all kinds of doughs where you want extensibility. So pasta, um, pie doughs, tart doughs, um, all of those are like really, really great candidates. But I also love throwing them into biscuits or just a handful into a brioche recipe for a maritoso. So um, just really lends this like golden like mm, flavor and <laughs> to the dough also like it gives us this golden cast that's really lovely. The last chapter of the book includes all of your pantry items, which are fascinating. Can you share an example of how you use herbs and spices and sometimes even vegetables as accents on your baked goods? I love herbs and spices. I think we are kind of familiar with a lot of spices in those warming bakes we have, like carrot cake, especially big this time of year, and like apple pie and sticky toffee pudding. Um, but I think we're less familiar with baking with herbs. They're usually reserved for cooking. So I really do a lot of things like using coriander and bay leaf in finishing sugars and also using a lot of vegetables, as you said, in either the bakes themselves, like in the um, vegetable funfetti cake that I <laughs> that I have in there. That's probably one of my favorite cakes that's in the book. I first made it as part of a vegetable series while working at Rustic Canyon, and um, it uses lemons, beets, and carrots, and parsley stems, um, and has a really lovely zero-waste approach that gives you the same effect as a handful of confetti, but you're eating... Uh, vegetables. So it really ties into my whole fun theory that cake is salad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll sign up to that theory. 
But yeah, and I also really like to put vegetables on cake because I think that people forget or maybe they don't know that vegetables are mostly a social contract, a social construct, sorry. And in terms of botany, it's really all it's the parts of the plants and most of the things that we eat at vegetables are really the stems, the fruit or the root or the leaves. So vegetables aren't real. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or you're welcome. I don't know who to whoever in that audience, however that hits. <laughs> I love that. I just have to say that the book is unexpected, really smart, and the photographs are just really pretty. Uh, the cakes, your cakes are just gorgeous. Thank you so much, Rose. Thank you, Evan. That was baker Rose Wild. Her new cookbook is Bread and Roses, 100 plus grain forward recipes featuring global ingredients and botanicals. We have a recipe for her honeysuckle trace leches cake on our website. You can find it at kcrw.com slash good food. And Nate Evangelinos, I'll give you a hot tip. If you remember Rose's cracked cookie, those perfect oatmeal chocolate chip cookies she used to make at Red Bread years ago, well, that recipe's in the book. Don't sleep on that cookie. Coming up, ube, coconut, and jackfruit. We take a look at the Filipino pantry with baker Abby Belingat next. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. When Abby Belingit was 17, her parents got her a KitchenAid stand mixer for Christmas. When she wasn't volunteering at key club events or running her school's Harry Potter fan club, she baked, combining her Filipino family's pantry into the desserts. Instead of just being a dork, I was a dork who baked, says Abby. Her blog, The Dusky Kitchen, grew into a book of recipes that blends the familiar with something sweet and special. Hi, Abby. Hi, Evan. So good to meet you. You too. I was also a dork who baked. I think that's a really good identity to have when you're younger. I know. I feel like it was funny because I spent so much time just like at home and that was my only kind of like hobby. And I guess sometimes being a homebody makes you feel like you're kind of dorky and you're just reading and you're baking. But I think that's like what makes people really cool now that I'm 28. <laughs> <laughs> You're first-generation Filipino living in New York, but raised in the Bay Area in Stockton. What do you remember about meals from your childhood growing up in a large family and your mother's perception of how Americans fed their children? Oh, yeah. So I feel like, you know, a lot of the times living, especially in an intergenerational home that we were living in, you know, my grandparents would also cook. My my parents, when they were, you know, done with work, sometimes they would cook too. And so I think there was always like an abundance of food on the table and visiting aunts and uncles, you'd always come back with more food. And so I'm very lucky uh, in that sense to have always grown up with Filipino food. And growing up, we'd go to like other friends' birthday parties. And then she would always complain because there would be not 
enough food. There'd always just be cold pizza. And I think she was just slightly judgy about the fact that you know, for Filipino birthday parties and any type of, you know, gathering, there is just like a, a central focus on a large spread of like, you know, aluminum trays just like filled with like different rice dishes, different noodles, and anything under the sun that you could want. It felt like Thanksgiving, like every time that we would like go to any Filipino party. And, and so I think I carry that a lot in terms of even when I bake I think that I'm very maximalist in flavors sometimes. And I love a party of like all types of things happening at the same time that hopefully work very cohesively, of course. But it's something that I think has definitely influenced the way that I make desserts now. What are the cornerstone ingredients in Filipino desserts? Your pantry section is just such a revelation. Oh, thank you, Evan. Well, I think for me, um, I mean, in most other Filipino uh, kitchens, in our pantries for desserts, a lot of it is coconut, rice, uh, you know, in terms of like rice flour, sticky rice, glutinous rice. Those are really, really staple kind of core ingredients, but also flavors. I think that ube is something I can't get away uh, without talking about it ever. And I love it so much. I think, you know, having a sense of like, okay, there's frozen ube, there's also dehydrated ube, and there's ube extract um, if you can't get the actual tuber in your hands. And so that's a definitely major ingredient. I think there's such like a tropical focus of Filipino desserts just because of where we are located in the world. And so I love the idea of adding jackfruit and coconut and just everything together at once. Just It, it feels very much like the, the food that I grew up with uh, and my parents' influence is, is huge in, in what I make today, too. Speaking of ube, can you describe what halaya is and how it differs from an extract? Oh, yeah. So like halaya is like kind of this jam. Basically, you're taking ube, like frozen ube, or even if you have fresh ube, that'd be great. But also dehydrated ube works for this too. But you're adding condensed milk and sometimes you're adding coconut milk. And to kind of just like create more of a sweetened ube jam mixture. And a a lot of great desserts like in cookies and, and even sometimes like I would say brownies or other types of cakes can like also use halaya as like either for filling or for also flavor. It kind of just like adds a bit more of the ube flavor than just using extract alone. So let's get into some of the Filipino spins that you put on traditional desserts, starting with your ube macapuno molten lava cakes. That one, I I just was so eager to talk about just because I think that um, the influence of that one was honestly watching Chef the movie. Um, And I I think that um, growing up, I loved the kitschy desserts you would get at a lot of like just chain, you know, food restaurants, even like Chili's, Applebee's, like the whole lot of them. Molten lava cakes were such a phenomenon (laughs) when I was a kid. And I think they've grown less in popularity, but I still like love to make them. And with using ube, and also white chocolate as a source of the chocolate flavor of this lava cake. I don't know. Just like it has like a nice vanilla, pistachio, nutty, tropical kind of a flavor. But also the macapuno is kind of like this mutated kind of coconut. It has this like jelly-like consistency and it's very, very much prized. It's like a delicacy in the Philippines. And a lot of times I get it preserved in these jars and that's one of the main ingredients on the very top and a little cherry and whipped cream. And so altogether, it's just such a great mouthful. 
And I think traditionally, my one of my favorites of birthday cakes was like ube makumanoa as like a flavor combo uh, of going to like Filipino bakeries as a kid too. Mm. I really love your pantry section because it's, well, it's it's illustrated. <laughs> I always yes. love illustrations. But there are so many things that I've never bought and put into my pantry to play with. And one of the items in there is hollow hollow fruit mix and beans in syrup. Can you mm. describe what it is and tell us what you would do with it besides just making hollow hollow? But maybe you should describe that too. Yeah. Oh, you know, I think this one is very unique. I, I think it's just because holo holo literally means mix mix. And it's it's probably the most signature like Filipino dessert. And it's a shaved ice dessert. And then this is kind of like the components that kind of give it like the most of its flavor besides having additional ice cream on top. And so in the actual mix, which is preserved in syrup, is usually jackfruit, red bean, yellow bean, and these lovely like juicy, uh, chewy cubes called nata de coco, which are basically coconut gel that if you've ever had uh, like boba or bubble tea that uses lychee or coconut jelly, that's exactly what the jelly is made out of. And there's also kaong, which is sugar palm fruit, another like kind of chewy consistency, very sweet. And all that together is just like it, and, and including sometimes ube halia that we talked about just earlier is in this jar. And traditionally, again, we would just put this on top of shaved ice and we'd have some um, evaporated milk and ice cream and call it a day. But I think that it's it's fun because in the book and the cover of the book is a hola hola baked Alaska. And Basically, I, I pretty much make a granita uh, with an evaporated milk that's steeped in jackfruit, but also adding in those chunks of everything in that hollow hollow mix. It's fascinating because I think that what I would use this hollow hollow mix for anything except for hollow hollow would maybe just, it has to be something cold still. I think like you can still have like a, a delicious sundae, maybe without the shaved ice using this, or maybe like um, a pre-made pie and then you add in like a custard layer and then some of this hollow hollow mix on top and more coconut whipped cream. I think anything with coconut in this just sounds really delicious. So thank you for like pushing my mind. And I think that I, I haven't really gone out of my comfort zone with the hollow hollow mix yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be of service. So I really love polverones. Um mm. Can you describe what they are and how you kind of, you informed them with the Trader Joe's ingredient? Oh, yes. I think this is like a great secret ingredient if no one else has, you know, used this outside of their oatmeals or shakes, but like freeze-dried fruit. It really does add a lot of flavor to baked desserts or not even baked dessert. This one's not even a baked dessert. It's kind of like a no-bake recipe, really. But um, there's something really great about just like all the flavor of that fruit without the extra water or the, the texture that you might throw off your cookies. So these uh, pulveron um, and the Fili this Filipino shortbread, basically, I think it also yeah originates from Spain, but it's basically toasted flour and then butter and then freeze-dried fruit and then sugar and milk powder. And then it's kind of compressed into these uh, little shortbread cookies. And traditionally, there's like a pulveron mold that is made out of stainless steel, usually at your local Filipino grocery store or, you know, any place that you can find that. But 
For me, like, unfortunately, in New York, I haven't been able to find those molders here yet. So I've made do with, like, these um, fondant plunger molders that are kind of like Wilton. All sorts of brands have them. But the key is just to have compression. And so if you just pack anything tightly into that kind of mold, it produces basically the effect of the cookie. And then you chill it, and it, it's extra solidified. But I just, like, love using the fruit shapes just because it's fun. And I love having a little bump of food coloring just because it just adds a bit to what you're eating and enjoying. And so that is the feel on like the rainbow fruit pulverone, but it brings me a lot of joy. And it's a great recipe to make with kids as well. Well, the book is really charming and um, so many things to make that I've never made before. Ooh. Thank you very much, Abby. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I wish, I hope to be back in LA again soon. That's Abby Belingit. Her blog, The Dusky Kitchen, evolved into her new cookbook, Mayumu, Filipino-American Desserts Remixed. Head to kcrw.com slash goodfood for her rainbow fruit polverones recipe. They are so joyful. It's worth checking out just for the photo. It's the end of the year, and you know what that means. Lots of best of lists. Last week, the Los Angeles Times released its annual 101 Best Restaurants list. Who made the cut? Who didn't? Why? Let's ask LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison, who takes on the monumental task of compiling this list year after year. We dive right in with his number one pick this year, Cato. Simply put, Cato is a Taiwanese fine dining restaurant in which John Yao reimagines the dishes of his childhood growing up in San Gabriel Valley into very complex, but also frankly delicious dishes. And for me, it is everything great about dining out. The personal narrative, the ambition, the scope, Cato has an incredible, overwhelming beverage program that includes one of the, the most interesting non-alcoholic beverage pairings and cocktail selections that I've ever come across. So it's, it's always a difficult decision every year, but the restaurant, since it moved uh, almost two years ago to Road DTLA in the Arts District, has just grown by leaps and bounds, and it felt like the right choice to give it number one this year. Such a great place. Also, terrific music. <laughs> terrific playlist. You know what? Incredible playlist. Very yeah. good R&B. That's, uh, that's Nikki, the, one of the partners and the, the general manager. Yeah, I agree. Very good. <laughs> Very good playlists. And now we go down to number two, Anna Jack Tai. Anna Jack Tai, if you care about food in Southern California, you know about this restaurant. Son Justin took over for his parents who had established the Thai restaurant in Sherman Oaks in the early 80s. And he turned it into a phenomenon with his Thai Taco Tuesday and the omakase in which he reimagines a Japanese format with Southeast Asian flavors. It's hell to get a reservation but persevere because it's worth it. And number three is one of my favorite places in town, even though I can never get in, Hayato. <laughs> Another impossible, even more impossible reservation because it's seven people five nights a week. But 
Yeah, there's there's no one like Brandon Go and his reimagining of Kaiseki. It is a world class restaurant. Full stop. And then we get to Republique. I love Republique. I love how it succeeds at every level, all day. Incredible pastries, great lunch, impeccable dinner. Just perfect Southern California restaurant. Next up is Holbosch. Our restaurant of the year, Gilberto Cetina. You've never had Mariscos like this, even in, in a Mariscos crazy town like Los Angeles. It's one of the great seafood treats uh, in our city. And he does a tasting menu a couple nights a week that's really fun. But you do not have to go to the tasting menu to uh, stop in for lunch and, and get his genius. And then we go to Ennaka. Again, another of our most famous fine dining, beautiful restaurants, um, Nikki Nakayama and her wife, Carol, just doing beautiful, thoughtful food that uh, reimagines Kaiseki in a California setting. And then we go to Morihiro. I ate a lot of sushi this year for a project that the food section did covering so many aspects of the topic. And even though there are so many good sushi restaurants in Southern California, Morihiro, I think because he has one foot so firmly in Japan where he grew up and another so beautifully here and and navigates tradition and innovation in a way that that no other chef does he's he's really the godfather of sushi here and and he deserves his place 100 percent. yeah yeah and then we move um in a different direction but maybe not so far still seafood providence what to say our our great white tablecloth fine dining european inspired notion of fine dining in a city that that doesn't always lean in that direction. They did a, a beautiful renovation of their dining room. I love how Providence keeps itself fresh and relevant by always reimagining different aspects of the experience. And then we take a complete detour um, to a different kind of cuisine, Moose Craft Barbecue. Yes, they were in the top 10 last year. If you've gone to Moose, you understand. I mean, it's it's a little bit of mayhem. It takes a long time to wade through the line to order your barbecue. But when you get there, there's there's just nothing like it. It's, it's an incredible marriage of Texas flavors and, um, and Chicano barbecue, Andrew and Michelle Munoz bring in such beautiful Mexican-American flavors into, uh, into what they do. It's, there's nothing like it. So we have one more on the top 10. And that's Bavel, Ori Menashe and Genevieve Gerges and uh, the incredible restaurant that draws on Southwest Asian and North African flavors that was the follow-up to Bestia, their smash hit and... Um, these flavors are, are particularly close to my heart, and, and nobody does it in Southern California quite like they do. So that's the top 10. I have to yes. say, it's really impressive, but it's a list of 101 restaurants. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so um, what were some of the new additions to the list that you would love people to take a look at? Just give us a few. I try to make at least a quarter of the list 
fresh every year. A few of those um, include Tuhomes in Inglewood, which is straight up comfort food, but with a bit of a West African lens that's really smart. We've had a, a little bit of a, a shawarma boom over the last year. I've seen seen a lot more um, places for shawarma. And there's a place in the Valley, Sincerely Syria, that I is my personal favorite. I also fell in love this year with um, Saboras Oaxaqueños, which is a very all-purpose-in-the-best-sense Oaxacan restaurant that exists in the original space of Gelaguetza. And breakfasts there are particularly phenomenal, though you, the moles are solid, the clayudas are great. It's, it's just a, in Koreatown, it's a wonderful place to, to veer into some Oaxacan cuisine. Give me an Orange County restaurant that made the list. Knox Kitchen is really wonderful because we have very little food from Laos in the Southern California area. And this is a restaurant that dives into that repertoire. The chef and owner started selling really herbaceous pork sausage during the pandemic. And the popularity of it encouraged her to open a restaurant. It's a lot more than just sausage. She makes beautiful um, handmade noodles and gorgeous gentle soups. And it's in Westminster, really worth seeking out. What about Long Beach and the South Bay? One that I love in Long Beach and would really encourage everyone to go check out is Amatoli. The chef and owner of the restaurant, Chef Dima Habibi, is Palestinian and Syrian by heritage and grew up in Jordan. And as far as really classical food from that part of the world. So not not so much the modern iterations like Bavel, but for somebody just doing delicious versions of things like emsakan, which is a roasted chicken dish over flatbread, traditionally eaten to taste, um, doused with olive oil to taste the first pressings of the year in the fall. That's one of my favorites. And, and if you're in Los Angeles and Long Beach feels like a long drive, it's great for Sunday brunch. Well, thank you so much, Bill. It's always um, such a great list. And for people that are kind of floundering around trying to figure out where to go, this list of 101 best LA restaurants has always been like a, um, a way to navigate through the city. Thank you, Evan. Bill Addison is the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. Want to see all of the restaurants he chose for his 101 Best Restaurants list? Well, you'll find them at latimes.com. We also have a link on our website at kcrw.com slash goodfood. Take a look. Tell me how many you've been to. In a minute, have you ever considered putting Fritos in your holiday brittle? My next guest says you should. Stay with us. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Sometimes you just need to know where to start. You want to make a pavlova, but you're nervous about meringue. You want a chicken with crispy skin without overcooking the meat. Sola El Whaley has a plan for you. These days, Sola is everywhere. 
on the Big Brunch on HBO Max, recreating ancient recipes for the History Channel on Food 52 and at New York Times Cooking, where she's a contributor. Before her career in food media, she cut her teeth at some of New York City's best restaurants, and her debut book shares countless lessons learned along the way. It's called Start Here. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations. What a book and a baby. Yeah, what a what a fall. Big fall for me. <laughs> yeah, lots of births. It's wonderful. Thank you. The book is incredibly comprehensive. It's like a cooking 101 lesson that includes recipes that we actually want to make. Have you been taking notes throughout your extensive career that ex- eventually became this book? Yes, definitely. I think this book is a culmination of everything I've learned, not just in my professional career, but even before that when I was a child and I just grew up cooking alongside my mom. Um, I actually have a tiny bookshelf filled with uh, countless moleskins with all these notes and everything I've learned, and it's all been put into this giant book. Wow, that is so impressive. That is so impressive and an inspiration to people who start writing diaries or journals and then stop. Don't stop. Keep going. Oh, totally. Yeah. Each of your chapters is devoted to a lesson, and the first one is taste, which seems like it would be obvious in the kitchen, but is probably the thing most people forget to do. Yes. As a home cook and a professional cook, I've noticed it's very hard to like stop yourself in taste. It's easy to get overwhelmed when you're thinking about like all the steps and all the ingredients and measurements, but it is the most important part of cooking. And luckily it's it's an easy thing that we can all practice. I first learned how to taste just by like tasting my mom's food and tasting uh, when I tasting really thoughtfully when I went out to eat at a restaurant or at anyone's house. And it's also about tasting food made by a lot of different people. So you can like learn a lot of different culinary perspectives just by eating and tasting. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's the only way really to develop a sense of um, what what you like yourself, because all of us have different preferences. But what you like yourself and also what's actually good, you know, uh, I think it's really easy to just make something and be so excited that you made something that you can't step back and think critically, like, is this, does this actually taste good? That's so interesting and true. I noticed that dips show up a lot in this chapter, both creamy dips and dressings, but also dry spice blends for dipping. Can you um, pick one of each and share what you like to do with them and how it relates to this overall issue of taste in the chapter? Well, one of the first things I ever made as a kid was raitha, which is a yogurt like dip slash condiment. We had it on the table for every meal. And it's at its basic, it's just yogurt that's been salted. But you can really level it up with different spices and different mix-ins. And it's a great place to learn how to taste because y- you really can't mess it up. If it gets a little bit too salty, you can add more yogurt. If it's too bland, you can add more salt. And you can really learn how flavors develop because you're manipulating this like creamy, acidic thing with salt. And as you add like a pinch at a time, you can really taste how it transforms. And that's really how seasoning works across any ingredient. Like you add a little bit at a time and you just keep tasting and there's going to be a moment where you're like, whoa, this is delicious. And it's just salt and yogurt. So it's a great place to start. 
And then another dip that I, I like a lot is a riff on gunpowder spice. Gunpowder is a dry chutney that you see a lot in India. Uh, you see it particularly served with idlis, which are these steamed rice cakes. So it's often called idli podi. And it's just a mixture of ground spices and toasted lentils and seeds, and you season it with salt. And the salt really is the key because without the salt, it doesn't taste like much. So it's another place where you can really learn the power of salt, how adding the right amount of salt and spice can really bring out the flavor of all the other ingredients. And it's another one where you can't mess up because if, if it's a little bit too salty, you just add a little bit more ground nuts. If it's a little bit bland, you just add more salt. So it's a really great way to like develop your palate in a way that doesn't feel like there's, there's no high stakes. You know, You can't mess it up. You can just learn. We're entering the colder months, so let's talk about braises and stews. First of all, what is the difference between the two? Well, the difference between a braise and a stew is really about the size of the primary ingredient and the amount of liquid. So in a stew, we're talking about smaller cuts, like one-inch pieces of meat, or you can also stew vegetables like stewed greens, something that's smaller. Um, and it also tends to have a bit more liquid. So you're getting like full liquid coverage. And then with the braise, we're talking bigger hunks, like a whole leg of lamb or a big pork shoulder or big pieces of short rib. And it's usually less liquid. So it's going to be more concentrated flavor in that liquid. It's going to be more saucy. And because it is like a bigger cut, it is also a bit more forgiving, but it does take longer. Can you pick a braise or a stew that you think we should all have in our repertoire? Something that with a little planning you can make for a casual dinner with friends or family? So in the braise chapter, I have this recipe for a stewed and braised chicken thighs. And it's really, really, uh, it's really just about getting the technique down of searing and adding some aromatics, some vegetables, understanding how long to cook it, how much liquid to add, and then letting it braise. And then you can really riff on it with whatever you've got. So I, the main recipe, I give you a simple version using zucchini and peppers. And it's fantastic in tacos. The zucchini gets really silky and soft and the chicken skin gets really rendered and crispy, but you end up with like really juicy meat. But you can take that same technique and do it with carrots or coconut and cabbage or curry, like green curry paste and bok choy. So it's a really great one to just get the base up concept of it down, and then you can play around with it with whatever you've got. Oh, that sounds so good. Two techniques that I have to say I don't instinctively reach for in the kitchen are steaming and poaching. When I'm looking for a wallop of flavor, it just doesn't occur to me. Yet you are a recent steaming convert. Um, for those of us who are not yet on Team Steam, can you win us over? I was not on Team Steam until the pandemic when we were all forced to cook every meal every day. And I became a really big fan of it because it is really quick and it's really clean. You really just have to bring a pot of water to boil and throw a steamer on top. And you can cook a whole meal in one of those tiered bamboo steamers, especially if you're just two people. You can have your protein, your starch, and your veggies all in one thing. And you don't get a lot of flavor from the steaming itself. So the key to steaming is knowing how to add a flavorful sauce afterwards. So one of my favorite, favorite things is to just steam some greens. You can do this with any green. Green beans, cabbage, broccoli. Once it's like crisp, tender, whatever texture you want, in a little pan, you're going to just heat up a little bit of fat 
any kind of fat will work, but go for something with like big flavor, like good olive oil or clarified butter, and then add some spices into that. Some like whole coriander seeds, cumin, chili flake, whatever you're feeling. You can really have fun with this. And then pour it over your steamed veggies. And it had so much flavor, like so quickly. And it's so easy, so healthy. And it's a great way to just cook on a weeknight. So I live in a house with no stove, kind of famously. And uh, Wait, in- <laughs> how? Is that legal? I have a two-burner camping stove outside. And um, I have a little catering burner I use. And then I rely on a toaster oven, which is really great for broiling. How do you like to use your broiler? Well, I think a broiler, if you just think of it as an upside-down grill, you'll have a lot more fun with it. It's just this really intense direct heat. Um, I use it to make a lamb kofta inside. So traditionally, lamb kofta is made over like really direct heat, really high heat of an outdoor grill. It's like key to getting nice char on the outside without the ground meat becoming too dry. And you can do the same thing in your broiler and have it any weeknight. The main thing with cooking under a broiler is it's quite uneven. You got to get to know your broiler. Mine definitely has some hot spots. So in the beginning, you're going to be sitting in front of your oven staring at your broiler. But once you get the hang of it, just think of it as a grill. Throw chicken under there, throw veggies under there. You can have a lot of fun. You also do turkey meatballs this way. Yeah, it's a great way to cook a lot of meatballs really fast. So you do them You do them first, and then do you drench them in sauce after, or you eat them like little round burgers? You could cook your meatballs all the way through in a broiler. Um, you might have to rotate them a little bit if you have some hot, so- hot spots. But I like to put them under there just get to, just to get some nice char and color, and then I throw it in this like fresh tomato puttanesca sauce to finish cooking. It's kind of like the traditional like meatballs and marinara, but like lightened up. Great for any time of year. So often desserts are given one chapter at the end of the book, but you give equal billing to savory and sweet. And I would really like to talk about pudding. I feel like this time of year, the kind of luxurious textures that puddings give is something special that we might crave. Well, I I mean, I really wanted to make sure pastry got equal billing because there is this like idea that you're either a dessert person or you're either a savory person. And I think that anyone can be both. Why not enjoy all sides of food, you know? And pudding is the perfect pastry to start with if you aren't that familiar with pastry because it is really forgiving. Cakes, you got to be pretty precise. You got to measure with a with a scale. You know, I think it's important to to, you know, get things down to the gram, but with pudding, it's kind of like a cook's dessert. You can play on the fly with it. You can change up your sweeteners. You're not worrying about leavening. So you can really get loose. So it's a fun place to start. And I think one of the easiest puddings that anyone can make is a posset because you're just taking heavy cream and you're going to thicken it with an acid. Um, So it's kind of like how you make yogurt, but even easier than yogurt because you're not worried about these like very temperature sensitive cultures. You're just bringing cream to a boil, adding an acid, Traditionally, most often and most delicious is just fresh lemon juice or lime juice. And then you let it set in the fridge and it'll just fully firm up and set just like a super decadent yogurt or panna cotta. And you don't have to worry about blooming gelatin. You're not worried about separating eggs. It's like the simplest way to get to dessert. 
I would love it if if we could talk a bit about caramelization. I feel like this particular chapter is tailor-made for anyone who loves holiday baking. Is there one recipe in particular that you recommend for folks who like to put together a, a holiday cookie tin? Well, caramelizing is really fun because you just take white sugar and you add heat and it gets so complex and you develop all these flavors and it's like pretty magical. Um, and one really simple thing you can make if you want to get into candy making is just a simple brittle. Um, peanut brittle is always delicious, but once you like understand how to make a brittle, you can really play around with it, add different nuts, add different mix-ins. I've like gotten really wild and done like a kitchen sink brittle and added things like Fritos and, uh, uh, different nuts and seeds and whatever I've got lying around. Fritos in a brittle is like a magical thing, let me tell you. <laughs> but And if you pack it really well in a, in a tin with some desiccants, you know when you get like crunchy snack foods, there's always like a little desiccant in there? Yeah, that little bag that you have to remember not to eat. Yeah, remember not to eat them and remember to save them for the holidays. Wipe them clean. You can actually put them in a low oven at like 200 degrees and it'll suck the moisture out of it. So it's kind of like reactivated. And whenever I'm shipping candy or cookies in the holidays, I throw those desiccants in there and it keeps everything really crisp and fresh. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Sola. Thank you for having me. That was Sola Elwaley talking about her debut book, Start Here, Instructions for Becoming a Better Cook, a cookbook. If you're a cook who likes to know the why behind the what, this book is for you. We've got a recipe for Sola's seared and braised chicken thighs on our website. You know the link, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, as a boy, Chef Roberto Alcocer celebrated Las Posadas with piñadas and his mother's cooking. Now he's reimagined what the holiday tastes like at the Michelin star restaurant Valle. That story when we return. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Roberto Alcocer is the chef at Valle in Oceanside. This summer, the contemporary Mexican restaurant received its first Michelin star, a long-held dream for Alcocer. It also makes Valle one of only seven Mexican restaurants to receive a Michelin star in the entire U.S. But now it's winter, and we're thinking of a different festive occasion, Las Posadas. Celebrated in Mexican households over 10 nights in December, it commemorates Joseph and Mary's journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem as they sought a safe place where Mary could give birth to Jesus. We decided to ask Chef Roberto how he celebrates the holiday. Hi. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. Congratulations on the Michelin star. That must have felt fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a dream come true. So it, it was, uh, yeah, we're still raving about it. Let's talk about Las Posadas. Um, what has it meant to you as a kid growing up in Mexico? How, how was it expressed or, or what did you do to mark the holiday? Well, the holidays are the time when the families get together and, and, and Mexico is still a really, really traditional country when everybody flies and travels to gather on that time of the year with their family and with this Catholic influence that 
the Mexican uh, culture and country has, it's it's where the posadas come from. So now we mix a little bit with with the new culture that we have adapted. That is um, having Santa Claus also. So it's having the best of of both worlds, and each family adapts their their posadas. There's some roots that you have to keep it, and those are. I mean, having baby Jesus around and doing the the peregrinación. The peregrinación is singing this song that you ask and the people inside the house answer and and you pray and there's some prayings for that. And it's because uh, Jesus is going to born that night. Then you have the piñata. It's a traditional piñata. It has seven spikes. And each is a capital sin. Normally it's filled with fruit and other stuff, but now they just fill it with candies. And there's an exchange of gift between the family and on traditional dishes. That is so funny how these dishes are only cooked in that time of the year. And also the, the dishes will change from family to family and from region to region, but there's some bases. Um, like tamales and pavo, that's it's turkey, uh, bacalao a la Vizcaína. That is the salted coat, Spanish style with olives and tomato. So yeah, and that's that's what the posadas are. Was there a particular dish that your mom made that you loved that you have managed to transform at Valle? For example, at, at home, uh, it's a dish that is not even traditionally in other families, but it's a uh, oyster soup. That's one of the dishes that I, that it has appeared in my, in my restaurants. Other than that, to be honest, the rest of the food is too complicated to be served in restaurants because it's a lot of things that has to be baked in the moment and served right away. And in restaurants it's, it's sometimes hard to be able to cook and roast this big stuff. But the flavors are there, like the tamales, uh, the flavor of the tamales. We have certain type of tamales or the, the stew of the bacalao a la Vizcaína. I mean, it's it's in certain dishes. So it's like the idea. The, the inspiration comes from those dishes. So um, tell me about the bacalao a la Vizcaína. The bacalao a la Vizcaína is traditionally made with salted cod. The good one is from Portugal or Nor or Norway, and you buy these already like dry. You need to soak it on cold water and and rinse it several times. To part of the idea is to desalt it, take a lot of the salinity, but also to start hydrating the fish. And at least you need to wash it six times to wash as much salt as possible. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really, really salty. How many days does this process take? This process takes around three days. So you change the water twice a day for three days? No, no. Like overnight, you lead it on water. That's the first one. And then in the morning, you change it. And then in the middle of the day, you change it again. And then you change it again before going to bed. And then at the other morning, you change it again. <laughs> and then that you start cooking. If you want to do it correctly, it's by doing this sofrito where you are evaporating all the liquids of, 
of the of the the bacalao will will drop some juices, but also you are cooking the tomato. You're dehydrating all the tomato and all the all the water from the onion. It's kind of like until evaporates and absorbs all, all the flavor is when it's ready. Mm. So it's low and slow. It's one of my favorite dishes. Thank you for reminding us about it. Oh, it's good. <laughs> thank you so much, Roberto. No, thank you so much. Thanks for the space. And I'm happy to talk to you and I hope to see you around. That was Roberto Alcocer, the chef at Michelin-starred Mexican restaurant Valle, located in Oceanside. You can find his recipe for bacalao a la Vizcaina on our website. And if you want to celebrate Las Posadas in Los Angeles, Alvera Street will host nightly celebrations from December 16th to December 24th. We'll have a link with more info at kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Rush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondorajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. However you celebrate the holidays, please have a wonderful holiday season. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food.